Would you turn with me please in your Bibles this morning to what is perhaps the best known of all infancy narratives in any of the Gospels as we come to Luke chapter 2 this morning verses 1 through 7 and you'll find it in page 1590, page 1590 in the church Bible. Luke chapter 2 verses 1 through 7. Chapter 2 begins with these words. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem to the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. And he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. Back in the first Sunday of December, we embarked upon a journey through these first couple of chapters of Luke's gospel. And I mentioned on that Sunday morning that studying the gospel of Luke is a little like trying to build a jigsaw puzzle for the first time. You have a quick glance at the picture on the cover You open the box up, you pour the pieces out on the tabletop, and then you start to separate out the individual pieces. And of course, you look for four corners. Then you separate out the pieces with a straight edge and those that don't have the straight edge. And of course, you start building a frame. And then inevitably, you start to build in one of the corners. And the corner, of course, begins to spread out in various directions. And I mentioned then, and I'm saying it again, that that's exactly how the Gospel of Luke feels. As you begin to immerse yourself deeper and deeper into its pages, you begin to discover an emerging picture that you don't always see when you only look at it from a distance. And I'm fairly convinced that that first corner piece reminds us of Luke's background. And we discovered in that first Sunday together that Luke had a medical background. Because in Colossians chapter 4 at verse 14, the Apostle Paul writes of Luke, our dear friend, Luke the doctor. And so we know he had a medical background. Then the next piece I put into that corner is, who is he writing to? And he's writing to a man called Theophilus. And in those opening verses of chapter 1, he writes, Most excellent Theophilus. New Testament scholars tell us, of course, this is a Roman name. Theophilus was probably someone who held a formal position or office in the Roman Empire. Someone who had an interest and, I'm not quite sure, a belief in God, but Luke is writing to convince him and to share with him all that had happened in the life of Christ. And so he dedicates his gospel to him. 
But not only his gospel, because there's a third piece of that corner that also tells us this, that Theophilus is mentioned elsewhere in the scriptures. And he's mentioned in the opening sentence of the book of Acts. And Luke writes in my former book, Theophilus. Now, why is that important? It's important for this reason. Luke is the only gospel writer who then writes a sequel. And so when you think of the New Testament, think of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts from the same author. And that makes Luke the largest single contributor to the New Testament. And so as you begin to put the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle in place, a picture begins to emerge you don't initially see. And that was my point. And the other point is this, that a fourth piece going in there would tell us this, that Luke is highly educated. And we know this, why? We know this because the first four verses that we have in our English Bible constitute a single sentence in Greek. And it is the most carefully constructed, stylized Greek to be found anywhere in the New Testament. And Luke's original readers in the original language would read it and their immediate impression would be, wow, this is remarkable. It is actually some of the finest writing, not simply in the New Testament, but in all of ancient antiquity. And in addition to that, not only would Luke's initial readers be impressed with his style and his use of language and vocabulary, they would also be impressed at the lengths he went to in writing his Gospels. Now watch this as we add another piece into the jigsaw puzzle. He writes, I myself carefully investigated everything from the beginning, and it seemed good also to me to write an an orderly account for you, and then, as you know, he adds most excellent Theophilus. And in fact, Luke tells us earlier in that passage that he has conversed with and interviewed those who were eyewitnesses, those who were there. Now, please hold that in your mind, because that's going to become important as we continue in our study. Now, having said all of that, If I was to ask you this morning, what do you think is the most popular Christmas song of all time? I suspect most of us would say, White Christmas. Now remember, Christmas song and Christmas carol are two different things. So what is the most popular Christmas song? White Christmas. Most popular Christmas carol, I think I heard it. Silent Night, of course, and it would be recorded by more artists than any other Christmas carol. But where would you find the oldest Christmas carol? And Shelton mentioned this last Sunday. He reminded us that as Luke writes, he includes four songs. The Magnificat, chapter 1, which we touched on last Sunday morning. The Benedictus, coming from Zechariah. Glory in Excelsis, which we'll touch on on Christmas Eve. The angels singing in the hill country. And then the Nunc Dimittis by Simeon as an older man. So when you think of the Gospel of Luke, please remember that he included these songs of praise in his Gospel. And the question is, why were they so important? 
They were so important for this reason. Those who were the recipients, Mary, Zechariah, the angels, and Simeon, had a natural instinctive response at the overwhelming love and grace of God, and they simply couldn't hold it in. So all of that begins to build this emerging picture in Luke's gospel. And the other part we know, of course, and we're coming to it now, is that each literary unit has a point and a purpose. Luke chapter 1 is the longest chapter in the New Testament, and it builds and builds and builds and builds, almost like that corner of the jigsaw puzzle, as it begins to expand. And as the picture emerges, you have a sense of anticipation and expectation of all that God is doing in a spectacular fashion. And so you come to the end of the chapter which wonderfully sets up chapter 2. And so we come, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And then we know, of course, that Luke, with an eye for history and detail, lays out the contextual, political, historical backdrop. This was the first census which took place when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And the question is, why does Luke go to all of this trouble to say who the Caesar was and who's the local governor? Why doesn't he simply write, once upon a time, Mary and Joseph journeyed to Bethlehem? Because Luke is telling us again and again and again, having carefully investigated everything, he wants you to know this happened to real people in real places at a real time. And so Theophilus, in reading it, would see the detail and say, okay, this is something I can trust. This really happened. And that's why Luke goes to all of those lens. And of course, he highlights for us Mary and Joseph on their way to Bethlehem. Now, why was that important? It was important for this reason. Because 700 years earlier, in the book of Micah, in the Old Testament, we read these words. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old. And we know the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. And here we discover that God in his sovereign purposes is engineering and orchestrating the administrative might of the most powerful empire in the world in order to fulfill his promises. Now stop and think of that for a second. That God, quite simply, leads and directs the empire so that Joseph, an unknown entity from Nazareth, along with Mary, in the fulfillment of his eternal purposes and decrees, will find themselves in Bethlehem to give birth to the Messiah who would come from the line of David and all of it is now beginning to fit together perfectly, like that jigsaw puzzle I mentioned. And so as we come into chapter 2, we see that at work. 
And the difficulty for us is when we read this passage, the temptation to read verse 4, Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth to Galilee and Judea to Bethlehem, is to think that Mary and Joseph were simply pawns in the hands of what was going on in the empire. And the very opposite was the case. God had his hand upon them, leading, guiding, directing, bringing to pass his purpose and will. But let me pause for a moment and add to that. And ask yourself to imagine what that journey was like. It is between 65 and 80 miles from Nazareth in the north to Bethlehem in the south. Can you imagine in the first century traveling the best part of 80 miles with an expectant wife? And can you imagine what was running through Joseph's mind? And can you imagine what was running through Mary's mind? And I imagine Mary thinking to herself, there is no prenatal care on the road to Bethlehem. No one's going to come and check my iron level or my blood pressure. No one's going to check the fetal position of the baby. Walking sometime, riding on a donkey at other times. Can you imagine that journey and how uncomfortable that was for an expectant mom? And can you imagine the fears and uncertainty of Mary and Joseph when they realized they would have to make that journey? They would be saying to themselves, how can this possibly be? This can't be. There's been a mistake. What on earth is going on here? What if the baby comes in the middle of it all? And the Nidrachs will know exactly how that felt a few months ago. And here was God in the midst of all of the questions and all of the concerns and all of the uncertainties bringing to pass His purpose and will to bring them to Bethlehem in fulfillment of Micah and Isaiah. And so in the midst of it all, We have not only the fulfillment of of Micah, but also the fulfillment of Isaiah. And the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And please notice that. Again, 700 years before it happened, God was not simply introducing an influence. He wasn't simply bringing a powerful force into the world. He was bringing his own son. That's the point of the nativity. That's what's taking place here. And now whenever we read a passage of Scripture, and some of you will be fed up for me hearing this for the first time, baptismal family, please forgive me, you may be hearing this for the first time, but often on Sunday morning I say, whenever you come to a passage of Scripture, there are three things uppermost in our mind. And the first is this, what is the historical context? Because the passage tells us while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. Now, we know the historical context. We touched on it moments ago in the days of Caesar Augustus, while Quirinius was governor of Syria, real people in real time. Then you look at the literary structure of the passage. Then you look at the theological content. Now, why is the literary structure important to the verse at the top of your screen? It seems like an ordinary everyday verse. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. 
There's no difficult words. There's no unusual words. There's no words that make us say, well, it could be interpreted this way, or it could be interpreted that way, but what it really means, none of that is there in the literary structure of the passage. But if you step back from the emerging image in the jigsaw puzzle for a moment, what you know is this. That on 132 occasions, Luke uses the word time. And nine occasions in these opening two chapters, he uses it in the time of Herod, king of Judea. When his time of service had been complete. At that time, and the time came. And Luke is saying, God in all of his sovereign, transforming love is about to bring his son into the world to bring salvation and hope for humanity. He's about to deal with the biggest single issue that we will ever face, and that of our sin. And he'll bring renewing, revealing grace to transform and equip us to know him and walk with him. That's what he's saying. And he's doing it through Mary and Joseph are fulfilling all of his purposes and plans. The Roman Empire, unknown to them, are part and parcel of all of his purposes. Now you may be saying, Richard, okay, I think I've got this. I'm following you so far. I'm grateful for the analogy of the jigsaw puzzle. I can see the various pieces. I can see the sense of anticipation. I can see it building. But Richard, here's my question this morning. How on earth does all of that that happened way back in the first century, how does that impact me this morning as I'm going into Christmas week? Richard, I only got my tree up over the weekend. It's not even decorated. I can't wait for Amazon to make their deliveries this week because I'm so far behind in my shopping. How does what happened way back here in the first century impact the 21st century? What difference does it make? Richard, I've enjoyed the historical context. I've enjoyed the literary structure. I hear all of that. I'm immersing myself further and further into... Luke's gospel, I get that. But what difference does it make to me? And here's my question before we go any further. Richard, how on earth did Luke know all this? How did he know all of this? Well, New Testament scholars tell us this. When Luke says, I have carefully investigated everything from the beginning... I have interviewed the eyewitnesses and I have poured out on paper where and when and how with real people in real places in real time. And Luke is saying, you can trust what is written. That's what he's saying. Because he interviewed those who were there. And how do we know that? We know that for this reason. That at the end of the book of Acts, Luke, who was Paul's traveling companion, Paul is arrested for his faith. He spends two years in the ancient port town of Caesarea. And where is Caesarea? Today, this morning. 
It is a 90-minute drive northwest of Jerusalem. And you can go and visit it. And while Paul spent two years there, guess how Luke spent his time interviewing Mary and Andrew and Peter and John of carefully constructing and writing his gospel. And can you imagine what that would have been like? Imagine sitting there in the shadows, listening as Luke interviews Mary and says, Now tell me again, when you went to the hill country in Judea and you talked with Mary, tell me again exactly what did she say? And then... How did Elizabeth respond? And what about her husband, Zechariah? And how did he respond? And tell me again, let me go back over my notes. And what about Simeon in the temple? And what happened the day he was born? And what was the context? And Mary, as an older lady, pours it all out to Luke, who includes it in his gospel writing. How did Luke know? Because he interviewed Mary. The final question I touched on moments ago was, what difference does it make? Well, here it comes. I mentioned at the beginning of the month there would be three principles that would take us through this Advent Christmas season. And the first principle was this. And it was a principle that Mary and Joseph not only learned but experienced and then put it into practice from the moment they heard that Jesus was coming. The first principle was, you can trust him while you wait. And for nine months, Mary and Joseph were wondering what on earth was going on. How could they possibly be the earthly parents of Christ? How could they possibly model parenthood for him? How could they love him and bring him up? The blessed Son of God was coming into the world and they were responsible for raising him. Can you imagine the conversations they had with each other? Can you imagine how often they were driven to their knees? Can you imagine as parents thinking, how do I do this? You can trust him while you wait. Now this Christmas week may not be a great week for you. You may have a spouse wrestling with the long, tragic goodbye of Alzheimer's. And it is crushing And all over the world, people are rejoicing and focusing on Christmas. And you are feeling crushed inside. Early in our prayer time, I mentioned that this Christmas, there will be an empty chair at tables all over the nation. Because family members and loved ones are not there. How do you then celebrate Christmas? You're fearful of the new year and what the new year will bring without the person you love the most. You can trust him while you wait. As you move through Christmas and into a new year. Uncertain about promotion. Uncertain about a new job moving you to a different state. You can trust him while you wait. Secondly, learn to embrace the uncertainty. 
And that is awfully hard. Awfully hard. But whatever you're facing, however difficult, however acute the pain is, you can lay it before him and rest in him. Imagine the moment of the birth of Christ. Imagine that. Where Joseph, trembling with fear and uncertainty, receives this wee baby. What on earth is he going to do now? A contractor to raise the Son of God. Trusting him while he waited, he learned to embrace the uncertainty and rest in the sovereign purposes of God. And finally, and this is a lesson for all of us, Focus on who you are becoming while you wait. How often in the past on Sunday mornings have we said again and again and again and again that God is more interested in who you are than anything you will ever do for Him. Because who you are determines and shapes what you do. In this Christmas week, Please be praying, Father, let me see all you're doing in my life. Let me see your refining hand shape and fashion me that I might be more Christ-like in my marriage, in my relationships at work, in my neighborhood, and in my family. Let me trust you amidst the weight. Help me to learn to embrace the uncertainty and rest in you. And let me sense your hand upon me and allow me please to delight and rejoice in this Christmas week and focus on who I am becoming in order that I might serve you. Wouldn't that be something to rejoice in this week? Let's pray together. Oh, Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture this morning. Thank you for all that it teaches us. And may we this Christmas week go back over this passage, whether we're here in the United States, watching overseas, whatever our circumstance, whatever our background, enable us, please, to trust you while we wait to rest in you amidst uncertainty and focus on who you are calling us to be. Bless us, please, O God, as we seek to celebrate this Christmas season. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.